0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: It's Tuesday, June 24th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And tomorrow is National Catfish Day. So quickly, create a fake identity online, hook someone in, and tell them when you meet them, you're sorry, but you just didn't have the confidence to show them the real you. No, not that kind of catfish. The swimmy kind that don't actually make that sound. I'm actually going to pretend I'm a defensive soccer player's shoulder in an effort to catfish Luis Suarez. Oh my God, did you see this? The Uruguayan attacker was engaged in another bout of soccer fiji saccharophagy, the eating of a soccer player, cuz he bit the Italian player Kikolini. And then of course Suarez fell to the pitch in agony claiming that the fleshy part of the Italian player's upper torso attacked his incisors. But hey, who doesn't like eating Italian? Okay, let's check on Twitter to see if anyone else made that joke. And here it is, Manchild 1077, to be fair, who doesn't like eating Italian? You know, too bad Kikolini was a starter. Otherwise, we'd have, you know, Italian sub possible jokes. All right, what do you get when you show up late for dinner at Louis Suarez's house? Tell us, Twitter. And there it is Dave W. Ins5. That'll teach Kikolini for giving Suarez the cold shoulder. Chewy Louis. Twitter was all over that. Huff Poe contributed this one Chewy Louis and the Blues. Which actually, people are calling a great headline, but it's not because it's too many steps removed from Huey Lewis in the news. You got the Chewy Louie, but the Louie is second, and the news becomes the blues. It's a pun too far. I did find this old list of old Mike Tyson jokes. Why? Mike Tyson famously bit Evander Holyfield. So, so here's one. Did you hear about the new Mike Tyson computer? It has two bytes and no memory. All right. I'm going to put that one into Twitter, Suarez computer. And here it is. Skulls said, just bought a computer and named it Suarez. It has three bytes and no memory. So I love when this happens. It seems like everyone has gotten to every possible Suarez joke. So I want to see what the late night comics do with this one. The bite happened around 1:30 Eastern. They have time to get it into the monologue. Uh, I'm going to be on CNN tomorrow morning, so I'm not going to be able to watch these guys. Can I deputize you, the listeners? Can you help me? You, whose ear I'm inside... Tweet to me or go to Facebook, and which is facebook.com slash slate gist, and tell me what the uh, late night comics, what your Fallons and your Myerses and your Lettermans had to say about this. I'm always interested to see if they can outdo and elevate their game to above crowdsource joke level. So today on the show, we'll be talking about the Invisibles, their workers. They're often really skilled and highly valuable workers who don't even want attention. And then in the spiel, it's not upworthy. In fact, it's crap, it's crap worthy, including some snooky snippets. But first, serving the Secretary General with papers in an attempt to sue the United Nations. Haiti is just the saddest place in the Western Hemisphere. Earthquakes, outbreaks, natural disasters. So when you read that there was a cholera epidemic in Haiti that may have killed 9,000 people and sickened hundreds of thousands more, you say, yes, Haiti, such poor sanitation. That's where such things happen. But did you know cholera hadn't been seen in Haiti for 160 years? Not until UN peacekeeping troops, probably Nepalese UN peacekeeping troops internal reports found, brought the disease with them as they attempted to provide relief to Haiti. So what do you do do you sue the UN yes thousands of Haitians are suing the UN or rather they're suing Ban Ki-moon the secretary general of the United States that alone is all but unprecedented and physically serving Ban Ki-moon with those papers is a story in and of itself and here is Stanley Alpert a lawyer for who's representing some of these victims here to tell the story and talk about the suit hello Stan thanks for joining us my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You know, serving papers, I think I read about it in English common law, why it's important, but this seems like a relic, but for you, there are a lot of logistics to try to slap Ban Ki-moon with this suit, right?
2: That's right. We live in a digital world in which you might think Twitter or Facebook or email.
1: I hope not Twitter. I'd hate to get that tweet. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. There are some uh, limited alternatives, but in general, you got to put it in the person's hands personally.
1: So how'd your process server do it?
2: The thing is, you got to understand, the U.N. hides behind its fortress on First Avenue in New York City, and so when process servers, normally if you go to Microsoft or Hewlett-Packard or any big company, they've got an office that'll accept service, because that's what decent law-abiding corporations do. But if you go to the United Nations, you get a bunch of security guards that won't let you in and won't take the papers. So we waited until we learned that Ban Ki-moon was going to be speaking last week at the Asia Society, and we had our process servers ready for them.
1: Are these guys good? Are these guys like the bounty hunters of process serving? Do they know all the ins and outs?
2: Yes, they know exactly what to do. They're experienced. There are times when uh, they have to go in and uh, have, um, you know, people that are going in under, you know, false pretenses. Let's say a, um, Mm -hmm. a woman who is dressed inappropriately and might therefore be able to gain access uh, in a way that someone else might not, and um, so they—they're this, this company's very good at uh, serving process. Did
1: you use the lady in red gambit to get to Moon?
2: We did not. We did not. Uh, we had two uh, excellent process servers. One was stationed at the front entrance, one was stationed at the side. At the side entrance where Mr. Ban appeared, uh, there were about half a dozen people waiting to welcome him, and so... Our process server went, so when he saw the diplomatic plates and he saw Mr. Band pull up, he went and joined the, the crowd of well, well-wishers. And he went to shake Mr. Band's hand, and instead of shaking his hand, he said, well, I'm serving you with process. Here are the papers.
1: And the papers have to touch the guy, or is that just like some TV myth?
2: So The papers definitely do not have to touch the guy. They concocted a lie within minutes about what actually happened. What actually happened was Our server put it in Mr. Ban's hand, and after it was in his hands, a security guard smacked it out of his hands and onto the ground. Mm -hmm. And the fact is, that doesn't really matter. As long as you even put it at his feet, that's more than sufficient. In fact, uh, when someone has a security detail, if you give it to the security detail, that's also more than sufficient. But our process server went back five minutes later, and he was taking photos of the spot. And immediately, one of the UN's security guards had, had concocted a story about how it actually didn't get into his hands. And that same false story continues in that the U.N. spokesman is telling that to every press uh, organization that calls up, it's completely false.
0: And we,
1: uh, meaning Andrea, did reach out to Farhan Haq, who's the a spokesman for the U.N., and Farhan Haq said I was there during the incident you mentioned. We were stopped for just a few seconds on the street outside the Asia Society, and someone approached the secretary general with a document, but a security guard interceded, and he never actually took it. He was not served with papers.
2: They should be ashamed of themselves. They've been served. They've got 20 days to appear in Brooklyn in court, and if they don't, they're facing a potential default.
1: Okay, so let's talk about the suit itself. There are hurdles here. The U.N. usually has immunity, right? So tell me about why, in this case, you think it doesn't or shouldn't.
2: In order to get into Haiti in the first place, they had to sign a treaty. The treaty is called the Status of Forces Agreement. And that Status of Forces Agreement specifically says that they can't come into Haiti unless they set up a claims commission. So, for example, if a U.N. truck hits somebody's chicken coop, well, they recognize they're going to pay for that chicken coop. Mm -hmm. And here what they did was they killed... 7,000 or 8,000 people, they hurt 800,000 people, they've got to step up and provide some damages for what they did. Nobody's talking about huge amounts of money. We're just talking about something fair and reasonable.
1: What's your theory as to how the cholera outbreak occurred?
2: Oh, it's such an easy thing to prove in court. If they'll they'll only come into court, I'll prove it. it. It couldn't be more clear. As you said, they haven't seen cholera in 160 years. Then there was an outbreak in Nepal. That's the part of the world where cholera originated. They brought the Nepalese troops over, so there was a base on the banks of a tributary of the main river in Haiti where people drink and bathe. It's true there is not good sanitation in Haiti. That's one of the reasons the U.N. was under an enhanced obligation, to be careful. And so what they do is they they contracted to build proper sanitation, except Whatever, for whatever reasons, perhaps corruption, perhaps something else, I think the U.N. should answer this, um, they didn't build the proper facility. and Instead, what they were doing is they were piling raw sewage up right next to the tributary of the river where Haitians drink and bathe, and the end result was practically a foregone conclusion.
1: If this suit goes through, if the U.N. is on the hook for damages here, would this disincentivize necessary either peacekeeping or relief efforts that, you know, it's in the U.N.'s job to do?
2: The general principle of immunity, we respect it. As I say, if they're on the border of Lebanon and Israel or in Africa doing peacekeeping, protecting people, and there are shots fired, I don't think that you can hold the U.N. gunmen liable. That's That's a real peacekeeping function. But uh, in this case, for what happened here, a very special circumstance, not likely to be repeated uh, um, very often, if at all, they, they got to pay people for, for having hurt them. It's, it's, it's in their own documents. This is not me talking.
1: All right. Stanley Alpert is one of the lawyers who's involved in a suit against Ban Ki-moon and the United Nations. Thank you so much, Stan.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: the farmer who tills the field, the cop who walks the beat, the home health care aide who uses care and compassion in everything she does. These are often referred to as the invisible workers of the U.S. economy, referred to in places like political conventions and ads for health care. They're not, however, the invisibles of David Zweig's new book called Invisibles, The Power of Anonymous Work in an age of relentless self promotion. This is not some gauzy sepia tone that let's celebrate the little guy. This is let's recognize some geniuses, but geniuses who aren't constantly pointing the finger at themselves. David Zweig joins me. Hello, David. Hello. Is that about right?
0: Yeah, I you know, I was very nervous when you I started when I heard your leading. He I was like get it. I was like, oh no, we're just gonna talk about the factory workers toiling away. So these
1: people you talk about, and even though the title's Invisible's you define them tangibly. Three traits. What are the traits? Why are those important?
0: They all have an ambivalence toward recognition. They just don't seem to seek attention the way so many of us do. And then the second two kind of core traits that they share is a meticulousness. And the last one is what I call savoring responsibility. These people really want and seek out responsibility. You know, it seems like most people Try to avoid responsibility. It's a burden. Um, these people, they want the responsibility. They, it's an honor for them to take it on. But is being an invisible, you know, a decent path to success? It's a fantastic path. The people who I profile in the book, I, I purposely pick people who are really at the tops of their fields. So these are people, of course, who are not um in the you know literal sense of the word invisible, they're very many of them are very highly regarded among their peers. They're often very well paid. They're in charge of vast teams of workers, so it's not invisible in that sense. But it's about the fact that when they do their work excellently, that the better they do their jobs, oftentimes the more they disappear. And um, so it's only if like they make a mistake or something goes wrong that the public or the end user, the patient, the customer, whoever that that. Person actually thinks of them. When Radiohead's guitar tech does a job well, everyone says Tom York is great at playing guitar. That's certainly part of it, right? So, one of the guys in the book who I profiled is a man named Pete Clements, and for over the past 20 years, he's been the chief guitar tech for Radiohead. I met up with them on tour in Europe. I'm there. This guy literally is in the shadows. I stood with him on stage right in the dark, you know, at a sold out show in Germany. We're there, and His job is so Tom York doesn't have to think about his equipment. His job is so when the fans are at the show that they're just having an awesome time and and not think about it. And so for him, invisibility is this mark of honor. He knows he's done everything perfectly if no one thinks about the guitar tech.
1: Do invisibles do themselves a disservice by not maximizing their earning potential? You know, we're all told you have to be your own brand. You have to be a self-promoter. They're not. So does
0: that hurt them? They show you can get there by having a totally different mindset by viewing yourself as quote a member of a team but really even beyond a team player but by viewing your work as part of something larger and there's a lot of research that I cite in the book that talks about where people like CEOs who you think would always be this like big blustery personality, you know, this big extroverts, a lot of, it's a whole subfield of business scholarship where they talk about transformational leadership, but where these people that the most successful CEOs and the companies that really excel have leaders who have the same mentality of an invisible, Now, the problem is with changing this mindset, and I could see your book becoming
1: becoming hot and people passing it around in a Gladwellian fashion, you know, (laughs) my hand (laughs) to God, right? (laughs) But you're never going to replace the institution of the guy who's on the front of Fortune Magazine because obviously the people who want attention are going to get the attention. So the press is never going to be able to correct themselves because Invisibles are
0: never going to hire PR agents and they're not going to sell magazines. And you know what? That's perfectly fine. Yeah. I mean, so what we all sort of know on an intuitive level is that that's not really what's going to sustain you. It's never enough. I have this great quote from David Foster Wallace in the book, where when he was at the height of his fame, when Infinite Jest was really exploding, and he said, he said, you know, when he would get a great reviewer, there was press on him, he he, he would get this greasy thrill. He called it. I love that he used the word greasy. And then an hour later, he would feel utterly empty. So
1: what have you been trying to do? Give us a little background on yourself. I know you're a fact checker and what have you been trying to do to become more invisible.
0: Right. (laughs) So, um, right. I mean, what the inspiration for the book was, I worked as a magazine fact checker for a number of years. That job is the better you do your job, the more you disappear. It was only if if a fact-checker makes a mistake that anyone thinks of them at all. You're never going to read a great magazine article and be like, oh, this was fact-checked beautifully. (laughs) It's never going to happen. But the thing was, when I came home after a really long day, I oftentimes felt this kind of deep sense of satisfaction that I didn't feel at a whole bunch of different jobs where I was, like, secretly surfing the web half the day. So after I got... The book deal, I was thrilled, and I was telling friends about it, or I would meet someone at a party. What do you do? Well, I have a book deal. you know. And it felt great. And I found that when I was working on the book and I was starting to dig into the actual work and the research, I became anxious, and I'm working on it. And then finally, I was combing through this giant transcript. It was like 30,000 words, and I was just dreading doing it. And then anyway, I dug in, and I'm walking home. It's like 11 o'clock at night. I'm walking home. And I just had this like eureka moment. I was like, holy shit. I'm like, I feel really good. I'm like, oh, I just need to do the work. And it was just this like awesome synergistic moment. I'm like, oh, I'm actually embodying what these people are about. You know, that, okay, right. Feeling good about telling people I have this book on Penguin and all that stuff. That's fine. And there's nothing wrong with that. But that's not enough to sustain you in sitting alone at a desk every day for, you know, night after night for years. It's not enough. The thing that sustains you is if you really just dig into what you're doing. Do you think that people who chase
1: visibility, people who have bought into this, you know, look at me culture are
0: less likely to find satisfaction? Absolutely. If your sole purpose is to become, you know, popular or a micro celebrity or thing like that, if you want to humiliate yourself to get on a reality TV show, I mean, there's never seems to be Um, a limit to the amount of people willing to go on The Bachelor, which, like, just fascinates me endlessly. It doesn't matter. So if your metric is Right, you're right. No reality show has ever been canceled because, yeah, we just couldn't get contestants. That's never happened. If that's your one metric, great. And if you're able to achieve it, fine. But, I mean, having the faith in doing good work, and even if you're not excellent at what you do, but being, like, the, quote, team player, that actually leads to success. That leads to respect from people on and on. With a message for Amarosa that
1: she's doing it wrong, (laughs) is David Zweig. He is the author of Invisibles, The Power of Anonymous Work in an Age of Relentless Self-Promotion. Thanks so much,
0: David. Thank you, Mike.
1: And now the spiel. Kitty is a dangerous emotion. That was said by the founder of a Cambodian human rights organization. And the issue was the false tales that Cambodian orphanages and activists used to garner sympathy from Western donors. But this goes on here in the West, too. The target is in our wallets, not usually. It's our sympathies, clicks and links that are shareable, that are like vampire bats sucking on the reserves of human kindness until... Well, actually, I don't know until what. Maybe you could say until our resources are diminished, but maybe sympathy just is replenished endlessly. And maybe some of us do lose, or maybe some of us have never gained in the first place, the ability to really think through a more complex issue. Like take this TV show called What Would You Do? It's the candid camera of conscience. In this one, the producers of What Would You Do sent in an actor spewing anti-Muslim sentiments to a deli-staffed by an actor playing a Muslim. Back at the deli counter, Oliver isn't talking turkey, but 9-11... What would you do? I'd fire the writer of that sentence. But of course, most of the people in the deli don't like this faux loudmouth. And John Canonis, the height of the concocted controversy, the host of this show, quizzes the racist. This guy's so smart that he signs a waiver that allows his likeness to be used on national TV. Obviously, he, he bothered you. Everybody's afraid to say something to him. Um, I wasn't, you know. Look, I, I would have been happy just to deck him, but... And of course, Upworthy packages this ABC report as a boy makes anti-Muslim comments in front of an American soldier. The soldier's reply, priceless. A boy. I mean, he is an actor on a reality show. It's all contrived. But yeah, I guess. Then Upworthy goes with this one. A customer wants to make a waitress's life miserable, so the waitress blurts out the truth.
0: Drop off food, they want Tabasco. Bring Tabasco, they want OJ. Bring OJ, they want extra napkins. Bring napkins, they want another side of bacon.
1: The truth? I mean, this is a highly produced video with actors and a slam poetess reading her poem, which is from the perspective of a waitress. So a good tease to this thing would be something like, Who's more annoying, slam poets or waitresses who hate their customers? Trick question, here's both at once. Instead, unctuous, upworthy, lectures us. Waiters are three times more likely to fall under the poverty line than average workers, and women are three times more likely to be a waiter. They average $18,590 annually in income, which is why this waitress has something blunt and hilarious to say. No, that waitress has something blunt and hilarious to say because she's a poet who wrote it down and established an arc and, you know, how drama works... This stuff isn't upworthy. This stuff deserves to be crapped all over. This stuff is crap-worthy. The latest example of crap-worthy, the unverified story that gripped the nation's attention, in KFC in Mississippi, a disfigured three-year-old was asked to leave the store because she disturbed other customers. Crap-worthy. Never happened. That wasn't actually on the website crap-worthy, to the best of my knowledge, but it's still a symptom of crap-worthiness, just like the plot it's given to Miss Indiana ABC's Juju Chang reports. But it was Miss Indiana, Michaela Deal, who stole the show. Rather, her curvy figure stole the show. There she is, the Buxom Brunette. Buxom? Maybe it does say something about the size of women we put on TV if we don't even know how to pronounce Buxom. But anyway, Buxom Miss Indiana. She is a tiny bit larger than the average beauty contestant. She's significantly smaller than the average American. So this is an example of a great beauty who was praised for her brave beauty. Upworthy did its own beauty praise for her beauty story. Some say this model is fat. She gives such a perfect response that even Ellen, that's generous applauds. So, Robin Lawley, quote: "Her flawless awesomeness is completely encapsulated at 39 seconds in." Quick, let's go to 39 seconds in. Let's see this perfect response.
0: It's it's fine. I'm really confident, and I love you know I love my body as it is. But it was a, it was a shock. You know? Oh
1: my God, how did she think of those words the noun, the verb, the subject, the predicate that she lifted from a trapper keeper? She's comfortable in her body. Wow, so flawlessly awesome. You know what? Fat shaming is bad, but heaping hype on an exquisite beauty who happens to have discernible hips as the corrective to societal body mischigas, crap worthy. Here's another crap worthy contestant.
0: I am so excited for this podcast show. Because I've always wanted my own show, so woohoo.
1: Snooky, whose real name is Nicole, She really wants you to know she's actually Nicole.
0: I want you guys to get to know Nicole. So there you go. Naturally Nicole, welcome to my show. Snooky has a podcast.
1: It's naturally
0: Nicole. But um, the world knows me as Snooky. and I feel like ever since I had my son and you know, basically becoming an adult and growing up, I feel like I'm more of Nicole. That's who my true self is. I feel like Snooki is more of like, I wouldn't say a character I was playing, but it was more on my party girl side.
1: But sometimes the Snooki-Nicole distinction is elusive even to Snooki. I mean Nicole.
0: But I'm not Snooki as a mother. I'm Nicole as a mother.
1: And here's the reason why this is crap worthy. Jersey Shore was crap, but Jersey Shore didn't pretend to be anything but crap. This podcast pretends to be worthy because Snooki's a mom. Snooki is a book on babyhood. The travails of a new mom are inherently worth your time. Listen to what this new mom has to say about laundry and tanning. Snooki is trying to snooker us with the same appeal of easy manipulation— We speak of the base emotions as anger or envy, but there's a form of really simple sympathy, an easily accessed concern. And I don't know if it destroys us for the real thing or just upsets me inordinately, but I do know the whole thing is crap worthy. And that's it for the show. You won't believe what this producer of Slate Podcast said when she was told she was Andrea Salenzi. And here's how one Andy Bowers is transforming how we all executive produce Slate Podcasts. You could subscribe in iTunes and give us a review while we're there. We're the Slate Daily Podcast or please do subscribe to us directly. We'll gladly send you an email when our podcast is up every day. Go to slate.com slash gist email to sign up for that. We're on Facebook as I mentioned when I called out for uh, the late night comic jokes. That's facebook.com slash slate gist and email us at thegist at slate.com. The gist, the amazing story of how one guy in the world changed America, made me speechless and said this amazing thing to a